0: passage on which the teaching is based this morning is located in Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. It's located on page 113 of your Pew Bibles if you happen to have that. <clears throat> Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning when he came down from the mountain great crowds followed him and behold a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I wonder if you are at a point in your life where you've named the power of wondering whether you're in or out. I mean, what is that age where you suddenly wake up and realize that throughout your life, there have been these little pockets, little, little enclaves of people that formed around you. And so much of your preoccupation is trying to figure out, A, am I in with them? Do they like me? Do I belong with that group? And if not, B, how do I get in? Uh, how can I get to come to be accepted by them? Well, C.S. Lewis uh, certainly took notice of this tendency in a little essay that he wrote called The Inner Ring, and he was giving a lecture at a boys' school graduation, and he concluded with this statement. He said, look, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire being in is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action.'" It is one of the factors that go into making the world as we know it, this whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, and advertisement. And if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you can be quite sure of this. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from the first day in which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. I love that phrase, the great permanent mainsprings of human action, because that means that the desire to be on the right side of whatever line you set up for yourself that puts you inside some group comes with the equal horror of realizing that you are on the outside. And they, whoever they are, are probably making fun of me. They're condescending to me. And I am a resident of the outer darkness, a loser. That's how we feel. But what happens when you couple that sense of being an outsider with a literal physical ailment? Uh, If you think about it, I mean, the last 30 years of social justice in our world have gone a long way to make sure that no one with a physical handicap is denied basic access to life. We have ADA-required wheelchair ramps and so on to ensure that we don't ostracize for people uh, for reasons beyond their control but then you decide to host a worldwide pandemic, don't you? (laughs) And all those rules went out the door. I mean, you remember, you know, we were so uncertain about the the potency of COVID that we shunned each other. Did we not? Uh, Regardless of how you felt like all those social rules that we made over time, I'll bet you you thought twice before you shook someone's hand. Uh, Or maybe you gasped in horror when someone coughed in public and didn't cover their mouths. How dare you? And we have this fascinating story though that I think would make a fascinating interview of this uh, leper if we could interview him in Matthew 8. Because more than likely his disease was not the Hansen's disease that you and I know of. We talk about the word leprosy. But there were a great variety of skin diseases that afflicted that uh, culture. Regardless, the only known treatment for people suffering with these diseases was quarantine. They were shunned. They were literally on the outside. And by the way, it gets worse. Not only were you socially outcast, but there was this whole battery of Old Testament laws that even restricted your access to the faith community. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But we've been looking at this fall at the Jesus, the hero, and how he is becoming Israel's great rescuer. And so right after he finishes his magnum opus on the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew immediately shows us how it was that he put those principles into action. And what we learn from this little story, I think, says very profound things about how God wants to transform our lives, not just our physical ailments, but also our spiritual and social alienation as well. So three things I want you to know about Jesus' intentions with this leper. We need to see that Jesus is willing. We need to see that he is holy And then finally, we'll end it with some application about how Jesus is advancing as well. Let's take that first point that Jesus is willing. Very simple, brief point I want to make, but I think deserves mentioning. Because I love what is suggested in this opening exchange between Jesus and the leper. Remember, the crowds are thronging. And somehow this diseased outcast muscles his way forward to Jesus. Maybe he's caught wind of Jesus' reputation. He certainly knows that the word on the street is that he's quite powerful. So he says in verse 2, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Do you hear the contrast in his question, though? On the one hand, he's saying, You know, I've heard of your power. I've heard that the healing of sickness and disease is, is at your fingertips. So, yes, your capacity, Jesus, is not my concern. My question is about your willingness to heal me. Lord, if you will. And isn't that the great question that we ask whenever we're suffering, don't we? Of course, Jesus immediately reaches out and heals him. But you've got to be careful at this point because there's plenty of occasions in Scripture where we see people getting healing and we actually are longing for healing and Jesus actually does not heal them. He's not willing to heal them in that moment. The first that enters my mind is the Apostle Paul, right? Who three times asked for God to remove this thorn in the flesh from which he is suffering. But Jesus' response to him is, my grace is sufficient for you. But look, just because that's true, I don't want it to neutralize what I think is being suggested with this leper. Because you'll find that when Jesus starts doing these miracles in the Gospels, they're not being done to show off. This is very important. Uh, Frankly, if Jesus just did miracles to kind of blow people's minds, I've said this before, I, I think I could think of better miracles to do, cooler sort of flashy things to do, But actually, Jesus is not doing tricks. (laughs) Rather, his miracles are being done to show the kind of kingdom that he's introducing. Which means, among other things, that healing is going to be a significant part of that kingdom. Which is why you have story after story. Something like eight stories throughout chapters 8 and 9 in in, uh, Matthew. Because he's saying, it is my intention to heal. It is my intention to bless. It is my intention to take away your suffering. But we have to add the word, eventually. Look, I simply say this because when you're going through real pain in life, is there not this tendency to kind of totalize that pain? In other words, the hurt is one thing. What the hurt suggests about your life, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Because when you suffer, you tend not only to endure the difficulty, but you're also having to ask this question, God, what did I do to deserve this? Like, why are you punishing me? Suffering is isolating, it makes you feel dreadfully lonely. And so look, if you're there this morning, I do think this passage is a lovely toast of encouragement for you. Because Jesus is there. Jesus is willing to heal. He intends to heal. No, maybe not particularly on your timetable. But I do think that our lives would go very differently if I was convinced that absolutely there was an ultimate healing waiting for me at the end of my journey. Every now and then, God, of course, brings little healings, doesn't he? Uh, It seems like it was nothing for Jesus to heal this man. But he does so, why? To remind you that he's good, that he is the hero. He can help, and yes, he is willing to help. So Jesus is willing, first of all. Secondly, though, we need to see that Jesus is also holy. There is so much more going on underneath the surface of this passage, and you see it in the leper's question. Notice what he says. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, why clean? The reason I ask that that, that question is because there's a perfectly good Greek word that he could have used to have said something like, well, if you will, you can make me healed or whole, or restored? Why does he use the word clean? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to sort of delve a little deeper into the cultural world of these first century Jewish people and the way in which they dealt with skin diseases. In other words, you have to know the story that these people were kind of carrying around with them in order to grasp exactly what this sick guy is asking Jesus for. And it's a story that begins at the very beginning of the Bible itself. It says, the world God created was good and perfect, but the humans messed it up. And so God chooses one family in the earth to restore blessing and goodness to humanity. But in the end, they end up enslaved in Egypt under the thumb of an evil Pharaoh. So God calls a guy named Moses to rescue the people out of Egypt. And there they end up in the desert where God enters into a compact with them, a covenant with the whole people. And what he basically says is, you are responsible to restore what mankind lost in the garden. And what God does after that is, is he plants his own physical presence right in the middle of their camp, centered on this rather smallish gold box called the Ark of the Covenant, right in the middle. Now, my hope is that a lot of that is review for you. But notice that the whole point of God being in their midst was to show that he is holy. And there's an entire book written in the Old Testament to help us understand what that means. It's called Leviticus. My joke that I always make is it's where you stopped (laughs) when you were reading through the Bible. You stopped at Leviticus. That was the hard one. But if you even do a cursory flip through the book, it says over and over again that God is holy it's constantly pressing that for. Make yourself holy, therefore, because I am holy. And do not make yourself unclean by defiling yourselves in the land that I'm bringing to you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Again, you don't have to be a scholar to note that the Leviticus is about holiness. It's the major preoccupation. But what I found is, is we typically miss the biblical richness of that word because of our own instincts about that word. We think that holy means that God is morally pure, that he's sinless, that he's, he's perfect. And of course, that's absolutely true in one sense, but that's actually only a little part of what that Hebrew word means. And it's not even the main part of what it means. The Hebrew word there is the word kadosh. And when you use that word, what it's almost always being used as is something that is in opposition to something else. Therefore, something that is holy is the opposite of something that is unclean. Therefore, the basic meaning of the word kadosh in Hebrew is to be unique, is to be distinct. It's something something that's separate from something else that's opposed to it, to be different. You see how that's not always the way that we use the word holy. I found one commentator who I thought had a brilliant illustration, though, to try to unpack this, because we still know something of this today. He said, look, take, for example, a hospital. We know hospitals, right? In hospitals, there exists a very special room, does there not? That room is set apart for a very specific purpose. And it's unique because when you go there, it's usually because you have some kind of life-threatening condition, maybe a sickness, right, that's going wrong with your body and you're suffering because of it. Have you guessed what I'm talking about? It's It's an operating room, right? But think about an operating room for just a second. The only people that are allowed in that room... doctors and nurses, uh, anesthesiologists, right? And they have to be sterilized. They have to put on special clothes before they go in. They have to have years of schooling and training to know what it is they're supposed to do there. They even go through very specific cleaning rituals to make sure that they're ready to face it. Well, that is what we mean when we say God is holy. He's set apart. He's unique. And if you're going to be in his presence, there's only certain people that can be here. And they've got to be specially prepared to do so. I mean, think about it. Like you don't want a doctor coming into the operating room in a dirty, filthy shirt, do you? (laughs) Or maybe like uh, sniffling because of a runny nose or something. Why? You'd say that's inappropriate. You need to be different from the way other rooms are. Okay, with that in mind, now we're a little better off to read passages like Numbers chapter 5, where God says things like this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge, gross, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell." Weird, right? But I want to go there this morning. Bear with me just for a second. What he's saying is, is in that culture, if you had one of these various skin diseases, you were unclean. You were unclean also if you came in contact with someone who had a skin disease. Why? Well, simply because once you touch them, your body is now marked with death in it. As that skin is dying, it's not appropriate. That's not what we bring into his presence. Secondly, the passage also says if you are unclean, you are not to touch a dead body. Obviously, if dead skin is bad, a dead body is even worse. It's inappropriate for God's world. He's about the business of extinguishing death in his world. And then thirdly, in that culture, you were unclean after you discharged any fluids from your body. Why? Well, bear with me. If you think about it, Men and women have certain fluids in them. And when they come together on the marriage bed, they mix. Those fluids join together, and sometimes they create new life. Not all fluids, of course. Nothing happens when you spit on the ground because no humans are created when you do. But those fluids, God says, because they create people, are holy. They're holy. And therefore, when they leave your body, you become unclean. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So you see, there's this whole symbolic cultural system that was set up to say something powerful about the God in whose presence they were in. Now, mind you, small little caveat, being unclean was not the same thing as being sinful. It's not necessarily sinful to be unclean. As a matter of fact, we know that at least one or multiple times in an Israelite's life, you were going to be unclean. It's just the deal. Not, every, not necessarily was their guilt who applied to it. No, they were part of their culture, and it was preaching a message to them. And again, we're not necessarily all that different. I found it more than a little fascinating in the midst of this topic this morning that no one came to church that I can see in a swimsuit. Why? It's inappropriate. It doesn't work here. However, put us on a beach uh, or maybe on your boat on a lake or something, it might be different, right? So that's what we mean, unclean. And there's this larger point though, the now when you've got all that back history, right? When this man says, you can make me clean, do you see what he's saying? He's asking for more than healing. He's saying, I want my humanity back. Yes, I want the comfort of human touch, something he's probably been denied for who knows how long. But what he really wants is to be restored to his faith community to be together with the people who love him. In other words, there's this dynamic connection between his physical needs that are matched by his emotional needs. And Jesus, of course, knows exactly what to do, which leads me to my third and final point. And that is that we see Jesus advancing. Because this is where the story gets really cool. Look at verse three. It says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That's a weird way of talking. Why did he stretch out his hand and touch him? Most commentators make the point that they're trying to highlight Jesus' action here. But you got to remember, touching a leper is a great big fat no-no in that culture. But what we find here in this healing goes way beyond the relief that he got from his leprosy, isn't it? And in order to really grasp this, we're going to have to go back to another Old Testament passage that I'm hoping you remember from, and that is from the book of Isaiah. The most famous passage in Isaiah, I would argue, is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah the prophet suddenly wakes up to this vision of Yahweh himself, the Old Testament God, there in the temple. And it completely undoes him. What does he do? He starts calling down curses on himself. It's so intense. Now, why would he do that? Well, we get this hint throughout because he's freaked out by these winged creatures that are flying around the throne. Those are not angels, by the way. Ask me about that later. But as these creatures are flying around, they say the same thing, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is what they say. Isaiah there is in the midst of something totally unique, holy other, and it drives him to his knees. And what does he say? He says, behold, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm inappropriate. I'm outside, I'm a castaway. I wonder why. Well, I think it makes sense, actually. What is Isaiah's vocation? He's a prophet. What does he use in doing his prophecy? His lips. In other words, he begins to despair of the things that he's especially good at, the thing that would have distinguished him on the earth. It's as if Yahweh is saying, Yeah, but not in here. That's not what distinguishes you here. So what happens? You remember the story? (laughs) One of these freakish winged creatures starts to come at him with a pair of tongs, literally. And he grabs a burning coal from the fire and starts to come at him, which you can imagine must have been equally intense. Isaiah had to be thinking to himself, well, I guess that's it. It's a nice life. Good to see everybody. I'm about to get fried and toasted here by this creature. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead, the flying creature comes around, touches his lips, and he says, your sins are forgiven. In other words, instead of incinerating him, it heals him. It purifies him. Okay, this is where it gets nuts. (laughs) You see, Isaiah started by thinking that his uncleanness did not belong in the temple of the Lord's presence. But suddenly, his delight, he suddenly discovered that his uncleanness was no longer contagious as it had always been. What was spreading, what was contagious was God's holiness, Isaiah's presence should have defiled the temple, but instead, the temple cleansed him. It made him unique. It made him holy, it set him apart. Now you see what's going on in Matthew, don't you? Because you have this astounding manifestation of this because Jesus leans in, he touches this man. And again, never mind the emotional healing that must have brought this untouchable man. I mean, Jesus touching him for the first time didn't make a human unclean. It was supposed to, but the opposite happens. (laughs) Actually, Jesus's holiness is contagious. And when he touches you, it's not that he becomes defiled, it's that you become holy. First time that ever happens. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Jesus will keep referring to himself as the temple. The temple was, it was contagious in its holiness back in Isaiah 6. Guess what? I'm bringing it in my body. It's amazing. Make this passage mean more than you probably thought it did. Let me just mention a couple things in application here as we close. First of all, this. I think we can walk away from this realizing that I, there's a real sense in which Jesus is not intimidated by your sin. The point of the passage is to say Jesus moves towards the pain, he moves towards the failure. He moves toward the disaster. But, but we feel the opposite, don't we? <laughs> I mean, our failures are the things that threaten to push us out. I mean, I mean, think about the last time in which you like royally messed it up. I mean, you completely walked in the opposite direction of what you knew God wanted you to do. And you did it willfully. I think for most of us, our instinct when all of a sudden we come to our senses is most of us imagine Jesus being ashamed of us. And so we avoid him. Or we sort of walk away from him. We're threatened by him. But I do think if that's you this morning, this passage is screaming at you that Jesus passionately disagrees with that self-assessment. Your failures did not surprise him. And God is not threatened to come near your sin. You can come back. You can come back this morning. Or you can approach him for the first time because maybe the lights are coming on now. Second quick application, I'll be finished with this. Jesus calls his followers to become agents of his holiness. (laughs) In other words, you and I, by virtue of being followers of Jesus, are ambassadors of holiness. Why else does Jesus include instructions for the man to present himself to the priests, you know, as one made clean for a proof to them? Well, it's because Jesus' followers bring holiness with them. They are the ones who start to bring holy touches to other people. Whether we find it in a physical manifestation or whether we find it in a, in a, in a spiritual manifestation, it doesn't matter. We're there for both. It reminded me of the stories that I've read before about the English Puritans when you had this great missionary movement starting in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And what was fascinating about these revivals that were going on in the isles at that time was that when people decided they were going to take the message of the gospel all over the world, they literally meant it, And one of the places we know that they went during the English revivals was Africa. It's the reason why there are more Anglicans in Africa alone than the entire Episcopalian uh, fellowship worldwide, but you didn't know that. But as they packed their things to go to Africa, they all packed themselves in long rectangular pine boxes. Why? Because they knew they were going to be buried there and the pine box was for them. And it's tempting to look at that and think to yourself, wow, what great Christians. Agreed, for sure. But don't you see that they got something about what this leper understood on the other side of his healing? (laughs) Where they came back and said, the Lord, you can make me clean. And whether they were suffering with physical ailments, who knows what they died of? All the diseases they died of, these Western European people in, in Africa whether they were suffering or whether they were experiencing want, they knew that there was an ultimate healing coming. And therefore, they could walk in and say, yeah, bring my coffin with me. I brought a casket with me. That's fine, because you need to hear something about Jesus. That was the mission they saw themselves on. They were going to come and make holiness contagious. That was their joy. That was their excitement. And it's our joy and our excitement in our own communities, is it not? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you walk us in through the supper because here in this place we even see more of you manifesting to us exactly what you've done for us in Christ. And so Father, feed us on your body and on your blood this morning because we come to you in faith. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.